This is Channel 253. In this episode of Gimme the Mic. Many white folks just want to be neutral, right? Like, like I just want to be a good non-racist, right? But the challenge is there's no such thing as a non-racist, right? right? It's, it, it's either you're participating through complicity or collusion, or you are going against. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Give me the mic. the mic. My name is Diane Tilster and I've asked for the mic today because I'm keenly interested in this new acronym in town, DEI, also known as diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've even heard the use of JEDI, adding justice into the equation. So I've invited my guests here today to talk about what this means. Joining me today is Lawrence Garrett, Executive Director of 828 Consulting, and Krista Perez, president and founder of the Tacoma Women of Color Collective, co-founder of the Community Market, and owner and lead consultant of Perez Consulting. Can I add something, aka uh, Miss Badass, if I could say that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Got to say something <laughs> impromptu. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so I want to thank you both for joining me today to let our audience in on what DEI is and how it is shaping organizations in Tacoma and Pierce County. So let's start with you, Lawrence. What would you like to talk about? Uh, would you talk about where DEI started and what inspired it? Yeah, so my journey and my story actually came from um, an experience of frustration uh, I was an executive director of an organization, uh, a leadership-based organization, and part of my uh, role and responsibility was to go to various fundraisers uh, in town. And most of these fundraisers were white dominant organizations that focused on helping support um, kids of color, specifically black and brown students, uh, to find more opportunities and exposure to new possibilities in life. And these were wonderful organizations who were doing amazing things. But here's what happened for me. Probably about my fifth fundraiser in, I just started getting cynical and I couldn't figure out what was going on internally. Like, why am I frustrated? It wasn't like the programs were, weren't running well. They were excellently ran. Um, the outcomes that we were hearing and the, the testimonies were inspiring. You know, you've all seen those uh, fundraisers where it just makes you cry and makes you want to do more and you want to just spill out all the, the money out of your pockets to, to see things advance. And I couldn't figure out what was going on inside of me that had me like frustrated. And, and I remember uh, I was uh, with a group of five folks uh, after the function. They're like, wasn't that such a wonderful event? And here's my response. Yeah, I guess it was okay. Right? It, was, it was cool. Right. And they're like, what do you mean? You sound like, you know, like 
you just negative Nancy. You sound like someone who just thinks pessimistically, like wh- what's your issue with, you know, organizations and all these amazing people who want to see things change in the world. And I walked away feeling like really indicted about my own character. Like what is wrong with you, dude? Right. And I couldn't figure it out. Right. And so here's what happens. I'm sitting with this for about two weeks and I happen to be driving on I-5 going south one day. And I look to my right and I see this billboard. And this billboard was an advertisement of this casino that was talking about all the latest winners, right? Like, oh, you could be a winner too. I look to my left and I see all the cars in a parking lot. And then it dawned on me. Institutional racism works like a casino. It promotes what's possible, but it profits on what's probable. And that's what was my frustrating point. I'm watching organizations that were white dominant sell the exception, but would not address the norm. They would sell me the jail to Yale story, but they would not talk to me about what is the probable outcome of what would happen in this environment, in this scenario. And that's what catapulted me to get involved in DEI work. My opinion, my definition of equity work is uh, uh, always promoting what's possible, but interrogating what's probable and fixing it. Thank you. You seem very passionate about that. Of course I am. <laughs> yes. But for full transparency, I've worked with Lawrence Garrett, and I know that he's passionate about this issue. Krista, talk to us a little bit about your engagement with DEI. Yeah, as I was kind of thinking about this, I go back to this and I think about this all of the time. And I've realized like my perspective and my approach is really community oriented and really community based. Right. So I would really describe the work that I do as a combination of working directly with the BIPOC communities. And I've really been fortunate to be able to do that through the um, TWCC and through the community market. And so working directly with the BIPOC communities and then, um, facilitating authentic conversations between our BIPOC communities and non-BIPOC agencies, city government, and individuals. Um, This has kind of created this space that I hoped for, but didn't know if it existed to work as a consultant um, from really just my perspective, right? And um, to really you know, utilize and implement my practices that I like to call and um, say that they're living and breathing, right? So they're living and breathing practices. Like I'm, I like to call myself an academic at times and I love to learn and I love to study, but I'm kind of done with that right now. You know what I'm saying? Like by the time you're reading a book, that is so old. It's old news. <laughs> like we need to move on by that time. And so I call it living and breathing because, um, the BIPOC community is so diverse, so different. There's so many intersections that exist within our communities. So just simply expressing, oh, we have a commitment to DNI, that's really just tokenizing the representation that exists within your organization. That's really kind of what it comes down to, right? Um, so I really, you know, everyone that I talk to, whether it's individual, which has happened, right? So individual consulting and Um, coaching and also organizational, I really want to encourage new processes and policies to be created and adopted based off of the work that is done within those communities, specific communities, like Tacoma communities, um, like 98404, the east side, south Tacoma, you know what I'm saying? Like really specific, uh, facilitating real 
and just like candid conversation. Um, I think to give an example, really great examples, I was approached by city government um, to help with their hiring and retention rate of, you know, BIPOC folks and specifically women of color. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we need to go deeper than just having one person of color on the hiring panel, a five person focus group. Like this isn't enough. You need to be talking to the actual folks of color that work here about why they're not referring their family and friends. Like, let's be real, because they're going to talk about power and privilege. They're going to talk about microaggressions. Um, They're going to talk about allyship, right? They're going to talk about all of these things that you're coming to me about. Don't come and ask me to be the single voice and representative for an entire group of people. I like listening to Go to those people and ask for their real (laughs) feedback. So oftentimes I will say that. I'm like, I will help facilitate that. And I will... um, I will help create a safe space where these people can come and feel that they can trust me at least and speak what's real. So we ended up creating a community forum and that's what we did, right? Real feedback on what this community, Tacoma city government, what folks of color need to stay in their jobs, right? To stay here and also to refer people. Um, So yeah, that's kind of, that's a little snapshot of the work that I do. Thank you. That's great. Um, so that brings me to asking, uh, knowing uh, this is where we get into this issue about the beginning of the movement. And uh, let's talk about what outcomes could happen in this community once organizations, corporations, and businesses embrace the real concepts of communication between groups. And, and it's a, your call, whoever wants to start. Well, I feel really strongly about this because this is really what moves what I do. Um, You know, when I moved here and still to this day, um, just for locals, you hear, especially, you know, BIPOC community, you hear so much, you know, people lamenting the fact that we're fragmented and siloed, Mm -hmm. right? And it is, it's heartbreaking. That's actually what you know, was the catalyst for me creating the TWCC. I was like, I, this community is so rich, so beautiful, but yet it's so fragmented. So how can I utilize and leverage my power and privilege as a Latina woman, you know, English speaker documented all of these, you know, privileges that I hold to facilitate, you know, the cohesion, right? So I think that diving into this work and not just DNI, but truly a, a commitment to uprooting racism and anti-blackness in your life will promote that cohesion that we're looking for, you know? Um, and it doesn't look like what we think. It doesn't look like, oh yeah, everybody gets along, kumbaya, unity. No, it means that the communities, each community is seen specifically for who they are. They're not just lumped together anymore, right? Latinx folks are not just lumped together. No, that we have Polynesians here. We have Cambodians here. We have Filipinos here. We have Afro-Latinos here. I mean, it's amazing. You know what I'm saying? So I think it's about waking up people to those intersections. And I think it would it gives us a chance and, and a, a belief that we can start to really come together right? No more siloing. Yeah. Okay, Lawrence, tell me. Yeah, you know, I I wrestled with it early on, just with the uh, concept of 
it just beginning, right? You know, Krista and I both stand on the shoulders of our elders and um, their parents. And, and this has been uh, kind of an ongoing um, battle, if you will, to dismantle systems of oppression since the beginning of the formation of this country. And the clearer we can get a, a grassroots understanding that our country, right, our, our nation of how we know it was really founded on two principles. It was exploitation and exclusion. And the clearer we can understand it from that pillar of standpoint, right? And, and then we can now, we can, we can introduce words like white supremacy. Like we can understand kind of how these, this, this uh, caste system, if you will, uh, was constructed in, in capitalism. And, and, and then I, I think then we can start talking about uh, movements, different forms of movements, right? What I would say about uh, the beginning of this movement, if you will, is that I feel like the equity movement is here to finish what the equality movement of the 60s was looking to establish. So I do see it in series. Um, and But I, I think the challenge for, for many of us is that, um, you know, similar to the matrix, I think we have an opportunity to take the red pill or the blue pill here, right? And when we decide to say we're going to take the red pill, we will recognize how everything around us has been influenced um, by these identity markers of gender and race and ability and a, a number of other uh, sexuality and a number of other things that kind of play into how power works. And if, if, if we wanted to even kind of zoom in a little bit more into our, our, our national identity here, um, I, I like to use a little form of personification and let's, let's look at United States as a person, right? Let's say, let's say, um, and it's 400 years, right? And I'm going pre before, obviously, 1776. I'm thinking of when the first Africans showed up here. And even before that, um, when indigenous land was stolen, right? Um, prior to that. But we, when we just take all that into context, right? And we think of our, our, our identity as a person, right? The truth is, and here's the harsh reality. The truth is, America has been a criminal towards people of color. It's, it's, you, you get what I'm saying? Like when you think about it in the context of, let, let's say it this way, let's say, I, I think we all have uh, kids here, right? And, and let's say, you know, your, your, uh, your son or daughter brings someone they're dating home. And we know how it is, right? As a loving parent, we want the background check. We're going to run, we want the credit report. We want to see everything about this person, right? And let's say, let's say, um, for most of the, that kid's life, right, or, or that person's life, they've been in some trouble. They've been they, they they've been a criminal, right? They've done some terrible things. But let's say in the last five years of their life, they've kind of cleaned it up, right? Um, let me ask you: even if twenty of those years, and let's use America, right? Let's say three hundred and fifty of those years. I'm I'm just going up to civil rights movement. I'm not going to even talk about massive incarceration and talk about the war on drugs. I'm not going to go that. Let's just park that on the side for a minute. Let's just talk about just specific policy, right? That was built on exclusion and exploitation. Let's just say let's start at civil rights movement. So we're now we're talking three hundred and fifty plus years of criminality. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And even if the last 50 years have been different and it's been changed, even as 
parents, as we're evaluating this person who's supposed to be dating in partnership in marriage, we're going to be like, yeah, I hear you, but (laughs) you know what I mean? And so so sure. Right. Right. And so that's where you see oftentimes um, where the hesitancy comes from, uh, you know, people of color specifically in regards to the trust and the, the belief that because what we're really asking for, Diane, what I hear the, the spirit of this question is we're asking, can we become something we've never been? Well, it's always fascinating. Right. That's it's always point. Yeah. Right. And here's the reason why we, we use words like racial reconciliation. That's an assumption that it was good at one point. Exactly. How, what are we reconciling? Right. <laughs> like there's nothing to reconcile because we didn't start off good. Right. right. So so even in how we reference things, right, how we're looking at things needs to be shifted and changed. But here's what I will say in regards to like really talking about tangible steps moving forward. Yeah. I'm excited to hear that more people, and and this is coming from my elder saying, more white people are more serious about this than it's ever been in the history of time. Like we're not taking it, we're not not playing around. We want to change this, we want to dismantle this. So there's a lot of excitement that we can capture with that, right? But here's the distinction. How do we move from being a equity believer to becoming an equity leader? Right. Like yes. like and, 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 and here's how it's it's it, the, the most important part in which Krista was talking about earlier once. And I know it feels like I'm kind of calling out white people, but just hear my heart for those who are listening. I'm calling you in. Right. The, the, the more that we can change the, the paradigm to say it's not about something you need to do. It's something you need to become. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, that's good. I like that. Right. So so stop focusing on what strategy do I need to take? What tactic do I need to do? What are these things? It's not about growing your competency. It's about growing your consciousness. It's right. it's a way of a being of how you have to dismantle or even what I would even dare to say detoxify, because I'll yeah. tell you, the truth, even myself. Right. Even myself, as I operate in this form of whiteness that I came built not even knowing, breathing this stuff, right? So the more we can start recognizing like the best thing I can do as as an individual and collectively as a community that we can hold each other responsible and accountable is by saying, what do I need to become in order to do the right things in this work? On that note, we're gonna take a moment, a moment's break. We'll be right back. This is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. Words mean things. That's what Pacific Lutheran University challenges me and you to think about in our everyday speech. When I speak to you or a guest over the podcast, the words I choose have impact, either positive or negative. Words have history, and when we choose to use them, we have to own their meaning and their effect on the people listening. My language, my choice. PLU is asking us to go deep on words like anti-racist or decolonize and to think about what those words truly mean. Then, once you understand them, let's talk about how you can put words into action. What can you do to live up to the word anti-racist? How can you decolonize your entertainment or even how you introduce yourself? These are big questions. To get ideas on how to answer them, 
and to find questions about other important words. Visit plu.edu slash words mean things to learn more. My sincere thanks to Pacific Lutheran University for sponsoring Channel 253 and for doing exactly what universities should be doing right now with this campaign. I remember living in Chicago for eight years and in Chicago, everyone you meet, every time you meet a new person, they're very interested in your ethnicity, even as a white person. They're always um, filtering you through your ethnicity in, in Chicago. It's very clear all the time. People are very curious about that. So, Krista, did you have uh, a follow-on from uh, Lawrence's last comments that you'd like to add? Mm-hmm. I don't think I remember, <laughs> but thank you for the opportunity. If it comes up again, I'll say it. <laughs> okay, great. Um, well, I am interested. I am really curious about this word ally. And um, this is a personal issue for me. I'd like to know, I've, I've said this to Lawrence in the past, that for me, I'm, I'm sort of a linear thinker and I'm also futuristic. So I, I keep wanting to know what does a community look like, feel like, taste like, whatever, that has embraced a safe, anti-racist mentality. So, you know, maybe we've, we've done the work that we need to do, but, you know, what does it look like? What does it mean to have a, a neighborhood and a town, a community that says, we don't tolerate racism here? I think it's a community that's committed to the work. And what I mean by this earlier, I mentioned, I kind of want to grab that word allyship and just roll it up into a ball and just get rid of it um, because it, it implies a destination and it implies that you've arrived. Right. Um, And then it like really breeds this like perfect environment for performative allyship, um, which is not cute. It's ugly. Nobody likes it. Right. (laughs) Um, Where it's like, Oh yeah, I'm doing all the right things. Where's my medal? Come on guys. Like I've done it, you know? And, and I get it. We all want to feel like we've arrived. Um, But really, you know, when, when I am thinking about that, when I'm thinking about allyship, who can I trust? That's what I'm really thinking is I'm not even thinking, Oh, who's my allies. I'm thinking, who can I trust? Who do I feel safe with? Those are, those are my top two everywhere. And I'm talking about where I go eat. I'm talking about when, before COVID, where I go have a drink, where I take my son, where I'm going to take my family, my organization, where we're going to frequent, where we're going to hold our meetings. Who can I trust and who is going to protect that space so we can be safe, right? So, you know, when I, I was listening recently to Brene Brown and I I just, I love what she said. And she goes, this is what I chant to myself over and over again is I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, Brene, <laughs> you got that one. Right. And that's all I'm looking for. Right. In my relationships, whether it be with individuals or organizations, yeah. your commitment to getting it right, your mm-hmm. commitment to uprooting, deconstructing, dismantling, white supremacy in your life to recognizing your power and your privilege, right. And to decentering yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, we're also self-absorbed. That's kind of where that performative allyship comes from is like, we love ourselves and we just want to feel so good about ourselves. That's very normal. That's very human, you know? Um, But also 
it is so great when we can decenter ourselves, when we hear these new stories and we're like, wow, okay, that's how it is for me. <laughs> that brings me to that. I was listening to you speak earlier and you were talking about connecting people. And I wondered if either one of you or both of you could tell me a story, tell our listeners a story about something that you saw happening that was surprising but fulfilling in terms of this work. Yeah, I was ready to answer that ally question. That's where my mind was going. So I'm, I'm very much linear in that regard. But I, I think I can try to um, bridge the two here. So, so yeah, because even the story that I'm thinking of in regards to my uh, uh, kind of personal issue with allyship fits with a, a uh, positive story kind of at the end of this. And so uh, my particular issue is who gets to determine allyship? Far, far too often I'm hearing white people kind of still proclaim themselves as being allies, which is part of kind of this internalized dominance. I mean, imagine if somebody came up to you and says, well, you know, I'm your best friend, right? Like, wait, what? Like, wait, how, 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 how did you just do that, right? Um, you know I'm here to help you, right? You know I'm here to advance you, right? And so um, I, I think just the aspect of like slowing down and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, like shouldn't that be someone else's um, call to say that I'm an ally in the work and not me call myself that? And here's the other piece behind this. I'm gonna give you some little hidden uh, kind of jewels, if you will, within the black and brown community. Uh, really what happens- yeah, yeah. Here's what happens. You know, when when someone is as labeled as an ally in this work and, you know, that that person that's black and brown knows that their creds are on the line. Right. Because when, when that person messes up, you know, we're going to say, man, whose man's is this? Right. Like, whose one is this? Like, Who like, this party? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you're not invited to the cookout. A hundred percent. Right. Because, you know, like the nails, you know what I mean? Like your judgment. See, I'm over here about to sweat. Like your your little like judgment comes into question. Like, you, you know, you can't just be going out there throwing throwing titles and throwing, you know what I mean? This, this kind of thing around because, you know, that's going to come into question. <laughs> like they're I saw that learn. happen in the 60s yeah. during the civil rights movement. I okay. did. Yeah. People wanted to align and they wanted to be allies. And but the black community says that's not on us to bestow it. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't want to take a chance on you because we don't know what you might pop off and do. So. And again, and it goes back to that credit report, right? Like when we look at the credit report, we're like, well, we're not saying we're again. And then here's where it fits with possible and probable, right? We're not saying it's not possible, but what we're saying is what is probable here is that this is probably not going to work out, right? And I know we're we're kind of laughing about this, and I know it, but it, at the same time, you know, it, it's a serious matter because. You know, um, black and brown folks are going to work every day or going to worship every day or going to recreate every day with this calculation in mind. Right. And and, and Krista said it. I mean, the the operative word here is trust. Like, do I trust? And and this was was what was really scary in the last four years um, under our 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 past president, current president. I don't even know how how we even reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, I'll just say 45. How about that? I like Um, that number. So, yeah. So I think the, the concern was, um, you know, the more that people bought into his rhetoric, it really put black and brown people in this space of like people we thought we knew 
we start to really question, like, do we really know this person? Right. And does this person or more specifically, does this person really know me and know what's happened to me and what matters to me and what impacts me? Right. Where this is beyond um, in, in some cases policy. This is about survival. Right. Like. And and I think and this is not an exaggeration. This is not a hyperbole. I promise you, in many circles that I've been in, this has been a question of safety, right? And which is linked to trust in this. And so that's really kind of what we're looking at here. And so to speak to it in regards to um, allyship, I I think what really plays out, I think a positive um, kind of aspect of what I watched happen is I watched when I was questioned or whether or not if I had took something, and this was a couple of years ago from a store, um, I had a white person step in and said, excuse me, um, that he was not even in that part of the store. My son was, he's the one that took it and he put it back somewhere else. So I want you to re-examine why, and here's part of the allyship, right? Part of the allyship says you intervene. You do the work. You don't just think it. You just don't go, oh, that's bad. Because one of the things that we've recognized as black and brown folks is that many white folks just want to be neutral, right? Like, like I just want to be a good non-racist, right? But the challenge is there's no such thing as a non-racist, right? right? It's, it, it's either you're participating through complicity or collusion or you are going against And the way to look at it, it's almost like the law of thermodynamics, right? A body in motion will continue to be in motion. Here's the deal. Let's go back to that credit report. A thing in motion and systems and policies and the socialization that has played along um, for 300 plus years, you say 400 plus years, right? It's still in motion. So what we're asking is when we think of allyship, I'm thinking of that lady who stepped in and said, listen, I'm going to interrupt what's going on right now. And here's the other kind of key component to this. I know I'm risking perhaps my reputation, my person, my uh, connection with you, my opportunity to be a patron in this spot, right? So, so when I think of it, I'm listening to what are you willing to risk? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What are you willing to leverage? Yeah. And that too. You know, uh, that took me back for a moment to the uh, the days of the Holocaust and how many families hid people in their homes to protect them, to save them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I see, I see what you're saying. That's sort of a parallel to stepping into the gap. Mm-hmm. You may have to go that far to risk your own life to save someone, but you yeah. do it. And, and that's where, it's the right thing to do. Right. And that's where that trust is really earned. Right. Yeah, because there there's many of folks that I've watched and I think about growing up in Los Angeles and, um, you know, they were definitely not for racism, but they watched it happen. Right. They they allowed it to happen. And then there's this concern that black and brown folks have have recognized and have been on the short end of the stick of recognize uh, of experiencing. And that's the the quiet code of white solidarity. Right. And it's this component of like, you know, I'm not necessarily for that, but I'm not going to speak against that. Um, And and so it's this kind of unspoken um, understanding that, you know, and here's where it gets scary too, when you start thinking about 
um, cultural formation, right? Collective-based cultures versus individual-based cultures, right? So this is where that plays in because now the individual is thinking like, well, this is not impacting me personally. This yeah. is not impacting me specifically. So this is none of my business, right? I'm not going to really get involved in that, right? Uh, unless we're talking about wearing masks and now wanting to like run up on governor's, uh, you know, houses and stuff like that. Now, all of a sudden now it's a collective thing, right? right. But when it's, when it's about sexism, racism and all this, it's the individual thing. And so this is where, you know, things get complicated and, and um, really scary. It, it brings up the word co-opt, being co-opted into mm -hmm. agreement, into belief. Um, I just listened to Jason Stanley do a, um, he's from Yale University talking about the polarization uh, of fascism, mm -hmm. that fascists uh, depend on polarizing uh, a society mm -hmm. and, went, and pitting one group against another. Mm -hmm. And and I think about that. Uh, I've been thinking about that pretty uh, sincerely going back in our history mm -hmm. and how there's always been a polarized group that, somebody could attack there was always mm -hmm. somebody who was less than mm -hmm. right so i see what you're saying about trying to overcome some of that ingrained belief and can i speak to that really quick uh, on yes. polarization um polarization is a really fascinating concept the more you explore it mm -hmm. and one of the things that has been really kind of um not appealing, I would just say intriguing to me, is that the tendency for those who polarize, they tend to conflate ideas that should be mutually exclusive. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I was working with a pastor who said, you know, we, we live in a community that is very diverse. There's a lot of black and brown folks here. We don't have that showing up in our church. We want to be more uh, inclusive. We want to be more representative of our community. I want to do a message. I want to do a thing about Black Lives Matter. There was three elders in that church that stepped up, say, when you say Black Lives Matter, you're saying anti-cop. That in itself is, and, 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 and it's so commonplace. Common. Yeah. And, and this is when we start talking about schemas, right? And where, where you, you know, you, you take one idea, now it, it unfolds four other ideas that should not be attached to this idea. Mm -hmm. But, but part of it is because um, fascism really works uh, or it's the birthplace within ignorance, right? So when you don't have the ability to critically assess how you're processing ideas, well, guess what? You are an easy target right? To move into polarization, to buy into fascism, which moves into buying into an authoritative government, right? Sure. right. You don't have, you, you haven't been given the ability to really critically assess how you are processing two different concepts. Right. Absolutely. And then uh, if you read the book Nudge, the, mm -hmm. the author talks about how we tend as human beings to align ourselves with what we think is the most popular concept. Mm -hmm. Right. And we may not go into any depth mm -hmm. and actually investigate something mm -hmm. to be able to make up our own mind about what's right and what's wrong. We'll go with the herd. Yeah. So, which is kind of scary. This is where I really encourage the concept of duality. Mm -hmm. um, I just had a conversation with one of my board members about this. Uh, she came to me and she said, Hey, I was wondering if we can talk about um, us supporting veterans. And I was like, what about it? 
we support veterans. And she said, well, we support Black Lives Matter and, you know, local Manny Ellis, what happened? Um, And she said, you know, perhaps it's just my perspective because I'm an abolitionist, but those, it seems conflicting. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, it's not. (laughs) We have, we have black folks on our board and we have veterans on our board. But I said, this is what happens. You know, people get so limited, like you were saying, um, uh, Lawrence, that they forget to think critically, you know, and so I, but it happens a lot. And, and I wanted to kind of backtrack a little bit and touch on, you know, this DEI work, um, how we are doing it within the BIPOC communities as well, mm-hmm. because this happens within our communities, right? Um, concepts of allyship, like, you know, if we're, you're in the Black community, who, you know, of the POC are truly allies, right? Um, all of these things come up within our communities and um, that does too, right? So, okay, so you're a person of color, but you're this. So I don't know if we really are on the same page. So therefore we cannot come together. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know, one thing, think critically too. And I, I just say it over and over. And perhaps for some, it's, you know, that spiritual perspective, but it's an element that exists and that's duality. You can hold both at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, Keeping your mind open, keeping the mind open to be able to engage in constructive conversation with people of disparate views. You can love a veteran and hate systemic, you know, oppression and racism and, you know, the war war, (laughs) machine for its own. And you could be Black Lives Matter and want to see healthy public safety, which involves policing and law enforcement. They both can coexist at the same time. But I do want to make some clarity about that. I do think the distinction in the two, when people hear terms like um, defund the police or, you know, um, they're thinking about kind of the dismantling of policing in general, I I want us to kind of investigate a little bit more about what is really being asked here. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I want to use it in a a pictorial sense uh, because I hear this reference often on the opposite side of what they think needs to change, which is we just need to get rid of the bad apples. My challenge to that statement is we're assuming that the tree is good. Right. We're assuming <laughs> that the soil's good, right? Mm-hmm. So here's my thought. I have officer friends that I hang out with. I don't think it's about getting rid of bad apples. I think it's about pl- plowing the ground. I mm-hmm. actually think there's good, I think there's good apples on a bad tree. Mm-hmm. That's right. the difference. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, this is not an indictment on individuals. Right. Going back to our early colonialism and you read about uh, you study how policing began, who was being policed and why it's all goes back to that deciding which group was going to be the victimized group. Correct. Right? We had they had to have some bad group in order to justify uh, policing. Correct. And I think really what, when we really focus on what the issue is, and when I say issue, meaning the issue of how do we help people move along, the honest truth is, I think those who are discontent or uh, are combative or contentious towards us wanting to um, move equity forward, they don't really understand what systemic means. Exactly. They, well, there, I think they, there's a lot of learning that has to happen, Lawrence. Right. And, 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 right. and I guess what I'm saying is it's that 
um, some people will fight against systemic racism, but the truth is they don't have a clear definition of what racism means. They don't have a clear definition of, uh, of what systemic means combined with systemic racism. So they're kind of arguing from an emotional standpoint. They're arguing from their own personal point of view, which they don't feel it. They don't experience it. So therefore it doesn't exist because I think as an individual and sadly, right, it's the fish that's the last one that knows they're in water. Right. So when the ecosystem was built for your survival and your perpetuity, this is why I don't get mad when I hear white people say, I don't think racism exists. Of course you don't. Yeah. Right. Why would you? How would you ever know? Right. right. You're the fish. You're right. the fish. Right. Of course well, actually, you don't. I like to think of us as the frog in the boiling water. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that, too. Yeah. <laughs> there's that too. Oh, isn't this nice? It's like a sauna. Gee, it's getting a little hot in here. Right. But but here's the thing for me, and I share this with some of my peers in this work. This is why I don't get mad. Right. I'm not getting mad because, of course, you're not going to see it. You don't because you don't have to. Right. It's like when someone says, oh, I don't see color. Uh, you know, I, I've always of course you don't. It, that's a privilege. You get the opportunity to say I don't see color. Guess what? Black and brown people don't get to say that. Right. right. So, so it's just even how we even process what we consider certain terms, because here the truth of the matter is our K through 12 education never gave us that academic vocabulary to right. understand. Right. So what happens is in these discussions, right, there's a tendency for someone arguing um, based upon a definition that is different from the other person who's arguing from a different standpoint. So, like, can we get clear on terms? Right. Exactly. Can we get clear on what we're actually talking about here? So therefore, we can have a meaningful and constructive conversation. But far too often, that's what's missing in the discussion. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you. That was that's great. Great stuff. I really appreciate both of you and what you're producing today. And I have one last question. We just have a few minutes left of this podcast, but I want to know in all of this, how do you take care of yourself? Because this is really hard work. Community engagement, working with uh, communities of color and trying to maneuver these conversations. What are you doing to take care of yourselves? You see uh, both of us looking at each other like, well, <laughs> man. <laughs> I'm like, oh my this goodness. is the struggle. This is the struggle. Um, I, I think so. Let, let me let me speak a little bit to kind of my um, personal convictions here. Right. I, I believe that I was built for a time such as this. Um, and um, I, when I think of reference to even the name of my company, which is 828, um, there's significant meaning behind those numbers. Um, the word, the, excuse me, the number eight. Um, and when you study numbers, it means new or new beginnings. And the, and the number 28 actually means power found through the struggle. And so how I was able to adopt 828 in equity work is that the power will be found in the struggle. Right. And so not just that, but also that Martin Luther King on August 28th, 1963, um, had his I have a dream speech. And so I link those two things together. And I believe that it is love. And it is this component of recognizing that the power is found through the struggle. And when people can take on that collective struggle together to see the impacts of improved lives from those who've been historically marginalized, that's where I'm refreshed. But if you want to know what I do for specific care, 
I am a big time uh, floater. So um, if you are familiar with the uh, sensory deprivation uh, type pods and things of that nature, I, I have to go on those and completely just disconnect from the world. And I will tell you, there is something really majestic on listening to your own heartbeat. And so yes. um, that's kind of my go-to. And then I bought a sauna. And so I've got a sauna in my garage and, and I go in there and camp out some time too, just to get away. Yeah. And I call Krista and I'm like, dude, I need a vent, man. What's, <laughs> what's up with these folks, man? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I've ran out of fr fragility patience for today. <laughs> it's real. It is so real. It's, yeah. I think mine is similar to um, Lawrence's. I, I always tell people, I'm like, um, you know, my family is church, right? So that's where I go to, I'm thankful for my family. Um, my family brings me inspiration. You know, they help me rise to my calling every day because it truly is my calling. I can't let it go. It just, it just, every day I wake up to it and it's just, they're nagging me even when I'm sick and tired of just people, you know, sometimes I'm just peopled out, you know, because I've been working through this with, you know, this person, this person, this organization over here. And it's like, sometimes it seems like we have so far to go. And then sometimes I'm crying tears of joy because wow, you know, I'm sitting in a space with 20 women of color and they get to feel safe for once, you know? Um, so that, that gives me joy. That gives me refreshment that, you know, rejuvenates me. Um, I think in a more tangible sense, uh, you know, I've, I've wanted to purchase a land in Mexico for a long time. Um, legacy is really important to me. And so is, you know, intergenerational work um, and just knowing your roots and where you've come from and, um, you know, being able to, you know, rest in that identity and also being able to guide folks towards their identity. All that to say Mexico is my home. And so I, I think that's part of, you know, my inspiration too. And that is my rest. So it's always been my place of rest. So I'm always working towards the next time I get to go to Mexico and be on the beach. Wow. And now I have property there that's on the beach. So it's oh. all coming full circle, right? I think that's wonderful news. What's well, so up with the invite? The result. You're you always say? invited, Al. Oh. <laughs> 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 to help float in the waves. Yeah, in the waves. I just want to say thank you to both of you. I'm, I'm really impressed with all the work that you're doing. And I just hope that... Um, this podcast will be widely distributed so other people can hear this great news about what, what needs to happen in our community, make it a safe place for people to trust that they can live here safely and, and with uh, respect and trust. Well, thank you for having us on Diane. And yeah, thank you. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Give Me the Mic is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.